0: We turn in God's word to Revelation chapter 5. I think the bulletin has four. It's mistake of my finger. Chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat in the throne a book, written within and the backside, sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. This, of course, has to do with all that's written concerning the development of New Testament history to this present time until the day our Lord is pleased to return again. And I beheld. And lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth, under the earth, and such are as in the sea, and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. Four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Thus far the reading of the Revelation. That's a description of the ascension written 50 years or so after The event, it's in visionary, symbolic fashion, but it gives us the substance of what took place when the Son of Man, Christ Jesus, disappeared from the eyes of his disciples and appeared in the heavenly and the spiritual realm. Lord's Day... 18, sets forth the truth of this ascension. Question answers 46 and following. How dost thou understand these words, he ascended into heaven, that Christ in the sight of his disciples was taken up from earth into heaven and that he continues there for our interest? until he comes again to judge the quick and the dead. Isn't Christ then with us even to the end of the world, as he hath promised? Christ is very man and very God. With respect to his human nature, he is no more on earth, but with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. But if his human nature is not present wherever his Godhead is, are not then these two natures in Christ separated from one another, not at all. For since the Godhead is illimitable and omnipresent, it must necessarily follow that the same is beyond the limits of the human nature he assumed. And yet, having to do with his Godhead, his divine nature, it is nevertheless in this human nature and remains personally united to it of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take up us to himself, his members. Thirdly, that he sends us his spirit as an earnest, by whose power we seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, and not things on earth. Prior to reading that Lord's Day, we read from Revelation 5, which we said was written some 50 years following the ascension, written for the sake of the New Testament church. And I might add, For the sake of a New Testament church that was often beleaguered and set upon and despairing of victory, seemingly ungodliness and unrighteousness had the upper hand, the dominion, was going to silence the gospel and everything surely is going to be lost must have looked like that just prior to the Reformation. But there's one who rules, who opens the seven-sealed book. He has his own purpose, and he has a way of bringing victory out of defeat, beloved. And we who approach the end of the world, who may face who knows what, must and better remember that. So, Revelation 4, 5, and then 12 as well. We won't get into that for our sakes. 50 years later, and now well, 2,000 years later, still reading that. But that was prophesied in many ways. I mentioned already Psalm 89, which we will quote in the course of the sermon. But don't forget, Daniel, the prophet in Babylon, and then with the Medes and Persians, and the representation of the anti-Christian kingdom having the people in captivity, and surely having the upper hand. And all was lost, and there would never be a return to the promised land. When (coughs) there were defeated, wickedness has triumphed. Our cause is lost. Let's throw in the towel and just give up. These words from Daniel chapter 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Believest thou this? Believest thou this? You can confess it with your mouth, agree within the mind, but do you believe this. And, beloved, we never surrender, we never yield. We never stop testifying. We never give up hope. The one who is for us in heaven is greater than all those arrayed against him and against us. And in the end, we who are identified with him, the church on earth, little and beleaguered though we may be, are going to have the victory. Essence, in principle, beloved, we already do. The theme here is the ascension of the promised son of man. I say promised because I'm lifting that from Daniel, you see. The son of David who was to come. That's Psalm 89, speaking of David's son coming to be the Messiah, we call him the Christ, and we think of a title, but as soon as you say Messiah, you're thinking of one promised, a savior, a deliverer, a victor, a champion, promised. Well, he was promised. He's still promised, beloved. He's in heaven. We're on earth. We're separated. But hope is there. He's promised. He's coming again, says the Catechism, in accordance with Scripture, on the clouds as the disciples saw him go. And then will be the complete victory. Not only over the ungodly, but the bodies of the saints, over death itself. And the Catechism touches on that as well, doesn't it? As we read the questions and answers. That's our hope the Son of Man. I'll come to that in the sermon, why that is such an important title, as Daniel says. There came near unto the Ancient of Days. What a beautiful description of Jehovah God, the eternal God, as the Ancient of Days. In other words, having all wisdom, his ways are deep, and then granting to us his son, but as the son of man to represent us and our cause, like unto the son of man coming with the clouds. Well, he did. He came on that redemptive event and day we call Christmas, the birth of Mary's firstborn, the seed of the woman, and then he ascended as well into into heaven to lay hold on what is described in Revelation chapter 5 so ascension of the promised son of david and i have in mind there especially the old testament church and i'm going to stress that as we begin the first point. Fulfillment of the promise in principle absent in the body according to question and answers 47 and 48 and why we maintain that and why should we? (coughs) Why is that important? And then to serve our spiritual advantage, can be very brief about that because what you find in 49 is really been expanded on, elaborated on in the Lord's days, some of the Lord's days that follow. But the ascension of the promised Son of Man. when that little band of disciples watched Christ Jesus ascend into the clouds and stood with their mouths open, open, gaping at him, and he then disappeared from their sight and went from the earthly and physical, into the heavenly and the spiritual, they only observed the first half of the ascension. They saw the bodily ascension of him going up. They did not see the glorious finale, if you will, culmination, when he appeared in the heavenly and the spiritual before the eyes of Old Testament saints. The church triumphant. I saw the first part of his bodily ascension floating up in the air, which in its own way, as I said last Sunday week, Sunday had a certain glory to it because, unlike Elijah, he wasn't simply taken up into glory by another. By his own will, he simply floated up. Not under the law of time, could not touch him. Not under the law of gravity. All was under his control. Gravity, I simply float up and defy you, as I defy death itself. All are under the control of my will and power. He floats up and then vanishes. In its own way, a certain glory and display of power. But the glorious finale, beloved, takes place on the other side of the veil in the spiritual. And it certainly was, beloved, a wonder of glory. So the point is that when he appears in heaven, it's not that that is not witnessed by the church. When he appears in glory, it was witnessed by the church. To be sure, not the church militant on earth, But don't forget there is another church from which we are separated. That's in heaven. The church triumphant. And they were waiting for him. That's the point, beloved. They were waiting for him with an eager anticipation. As eager an anticipation as we ought to have for his return upon the clouds of heaven. Because though there are in heaven, it wasn't perfect in heaven, was it? They were perfect, but it wasn't perfect. There was one who appeared on a regular basis and said, What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Samson, Noah, David, Sarah, whoever. Eve, didn't you rebel against God? Didn't you sin? Who served your sentence? Who paid for your debt? You have no right to be here. And I don't know what hope you have, but it's a blasted hope. You may be here now, but in the end, God's going to have to cast you away because no one has paid for your sins. No one served your sentence, and God is a righteous God. Aren't you, God? And if you allow these transgressors, these who have this guilt upon them to remain, I challenge thy righteousness. The accuser of the brethren, beloved. They had to hear that. As they were in the abode of heaven, God suffered it to be so in order in the end to magnify the great Son of Man, Christ Jesus, Savior and Lord. His Son, but also beloved, the Son of Man. They're waiting for him. This may well have been, when he appears in heaven, the first glimpse that they have of him. We're not told that following his resurrection necessarily he appeared visibly in heaven. Every indication is that he waits for his visible appearance into heaven until his ascension and between the resurrection and then his ascension 40 days later he simply is invisible to the human eye whether it be on earth or in heaven itself. So they're waiting. They're waiting. They know he has been born. Don't think there's not news in heaven of certain things that happen on earth. They knew he had been born. The angels made the announcements on earth. You think they didn't go back in heaven and make the announcement as well to the saints who are waiting and waiting and waiting for the coming of the Son of Man promised in in, in, in uh, Psalm 89 and in Daniel chapter 7. This is their Champion, not only. This is the one who's going to give them the irrevocable right to remain in glory as the justified and those who have been made righteous and perfect and have eternal life, not simply a temporary abode, you might say, in glory, but an everlasting abode. And they know he had been born. The angel announced it on earth, and they hear in heaven, and they know and knew about the cross, beloved. Of course they did. Elijah. And Moses appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. You think they're the only two saints in heaven that knew that Christ was facing the cross? Abraham didn't know that, and David didn't know that. And Sarah and Ruth, they they wouldn't have known that just Moses and, and, and Elijah who had their bodies in heaven? Of course not. The saints in heaven knew the one who was to be their mediator, face the cross and the horror of the cross. And he needed to be strengthened to face that cross. Moses and Elijah didn't simply represent themselves, they represented the church in heaven, the church triumphant to go into the, onto, onto earth and to appear on the Mount of Transfiguration the eyes of those three disciples as well and to encourage him concerning what faced him, the horror of the cross, not simply the the jibes and the mocking of men and the pain of the body, but the the hellish agony and torment of the wrath of God to be forsaken by, by his own father. And to remind him, all is at stake. Thy obedience. Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord, Thy obedience is our salvation. It all hangs and hinges on that. And they represent the church triumphant. And the cross occurs. And he gives his life. And he says it's finished. And his body lies in the grave, untouched by the power of death. He saw no corruption. It could not even make his body decay because he had accomplished that victory by the shedding of his blood and his very body corpse in the in the tomb untouched by the devouring powers of of death indicate his victory. And then he arises from the dead and you may be sure the saints in heaven know also he has arisen from the dead. Whether they see him or not, they know he has arisen from the dead and has sealed the victory. But now they've, must see him, because even though he sealed the victory by his death, by, by his resurrection, heaven is not yet perfected. It hasn't been cleaned out. The evil one, Satan, the accuser, could still appear. And then comes the day of the ascension, and the church on militant on earth watches him, him go, and they have questions in their minds what's going to happen from from here out, though he has said, I will be with you always to the end of the earth. And, and go, the angel said, to this, this room and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but wait, wondering what's going to happen. But he appears in the heavenlies, and they see him beloved. And then you can sing these psalms, you know, he has gone up with a shout, because when he appears, he appears before the, the eyes of the church triumphant, and there is song, you see, songs of adoration and of, of praise and of glory. The heavenly, the heavenly sanctuary must have reverberated, beloved. It must have, have re- vibrated, if, if you will, with the, with the heavenly choir 10,000 times 10,000. How many are in heaven at that time, we don't, we don't know. But a, a large number, as the heavenly choir sings, of his appearing unto them as their Lord and of their Savior, and as the Son of Man, to be enthroned and be on his proper place that he has, of course, earned by his his death and purchased for himself, not only, but on their behalf, as the catechism says, in their interest. So that second half of the ascension, what you might call the, the glorious the glorious finale, and yet it's really only the beginning because he comes, as Revelation chapter 5 says, to be seated, to be seated on the, on the throne and to have under his authority what's represented by that seven-sealed book, the whole of New Testament history, to work out his own, his own plan, which has to do with the gospel, doesn't it? The spread of the gospel and the gathering of the church for, that he has bought with his blood from every nation, tribe, and, and tongue. He so is, he is there, and they magnify him, and he has now the right. But he has not yet cleansed heaven below. There is a work that he has yet to accomplish, and for the saints, even the ch- church triumphant in heaven. Of course, you read of that in Revelation chapter 12. You have this great wonder, the woman with child, 12 stars, moon, sun under her feet. Being with child cries, travailing in birth. That's the church, not just Mary, Virgin Mary, but the church of the Old Testament. And this great red dragon who seeks to prevent the coming of the seed of the woman. And he stood ready to devour that child as soon as he was delivered. And then verse 5, and she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, because he's presented here as the victor over evil, you see, over that which would destroy his church and the people of God. The rod of iron, this mighty club in his hand, represented by a scepter these days. And her child was caught up into God in his throne. That's the ascension. And the wind flees into the wilderness. She has a place prepared. There's war in heaven, seven. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon, and the dragon fought with his angel, but the dragon prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. He was cast out, that old serpent, the devil, who deceives the world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then this cry, beloved, this is Pentecost in heaven. Ten days between Ascension and Pentecost, there's this Warfare in the spiritual realm that's beyond our comprehension. That Christ, the champion, and Michael, his general, with the authority of the ascended Christ, and between angels and and devils, angels and fallen angels, some kind of a spiritual warfare with the with somehow with with words and so on, and he's driven out. He has no right. But now. Notice it says, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accused uh, them before our God day and night. Now there is a certain perfection in heaven itself, and the accuser can appear no more. He has been silenced. But he goes to earth, and now of course he brings his accusations to earth, and that must of course be addressed in silence as well. But be that as it may, that's Great first great work of this ascended Christ Jesus on behalf of his church in heaven, first you see, cleansing heaven of the accuser and of the devil. They have no right to appear there, and of course, that means to the New Test the Old Testament saints who are there, their right to glory and everlasting life is now irrevocably established, and they have. Nothing to fear, and they don't have to hear these accusations in their ears anymore. They simply have to look at the Lamb, who is the Lion of Judah's tribe, Christ Jesus, and realize, here is our salvation, here is our certainty. Our sentence has been served. Our debt has been paid. In his name we have the right to be here, that is, in glory forever. I'm going to say this now, too. They will not be in that heaven forever even that heaven, beloved, in which they are now, is temporary. Let's understand that. This earth, this present creation, is temporary. And the heaven in which the bodies of Enoch and Moses and Elijah are, along with Christ, and then the souls of the saints somehow clothed, is only temporary. It was never meant to be forever, that's not heaven in the true sense of the word. There's the spiritual, the heavenlies, and the earth, the creation, but they're both temporary creations that are meant to pass away. There's a veil below between the earth and the heaven. That's why when Elijah went up, he vanished from one realm to another. When Christ went up, he vanished from one realm to another. The angels would appear and they'd vanish and they'd go back to the spiritual realm, invisible to our eyes. Two realms, separated. There there is, as it were, you see a veil between the two. That's how God created all things originally. And the first Adam was given the headship of the visible creation. But he did not have the headship of heaven, did he? He was created a little lower than the angels. And he was meant simply to be the head of the visible creation. You have the heavenlies, and that's the realm of the angels. Who is the head of the heavenly? Beloved, there was no angel that that was not reserved for Lucifer who become Satan, who coveted that highest pinnacle to have the headship of the heavens and the earth. That was reserved, beloved, for a son of man. Created a little lower than the angels, but to be crowned with glory and honor and to have dominion, beloved, over a whole creation. God so loved the world. But not just visible creation, but the heavens, too, where the saints now are. To rule there as well. As the Son of Man. And when he ascends up into heaven, beloved, it's a Son of Man who has the victory over Satan. And that's what riles him. A man? Some human being? Because he does have a human nature, you know. He's the Son of God, but he's also the Son of Man. And a man? under no matter his authority... I'm under his power. He defeats me. That's a blow to his pride. But that's who he is, beloved. That's a title, you see. Not simply a son of man. It's the. The son of man. And that means he's the heir. God created all things with man in mind. The chief of his works in the end. In the beginning, beloved, not having the glory and power of the angels. But when Christ arises from the dead in his new, immortal, incorruptible body and ascends up into heaven, he has more power than the angels and more authority than the angels. And you know what that means, beloved? There comes a day when we will also. That's what his ascension means in the end, in our body and our flesh with us in mind, for our sake, that we one day will be as he is. Only, of course, we will not be the eternal son of God as, the, as, as, as he is, but still we will be daughters and sons of men and be the kings and queens of a whole creation, heaven and earth, if you will, and the veil ripped away. That's what God originally intended. The first Adam couldn't accomplish that. The removal of of the veil between the visible and the invisible. The second Adam, the son of man who is also the son of God, he could accomplish that. He himself is, you know, from some points of view, the divine and the human. And he addresses that veil by his death and removes sin that even made separation. And he ascends to heaven to work in the New Testament age to bring the salvation of his church. And when that's concluded comes the culmination. And the culmination, beloved, is the removal of all that was created in the beginning. This creation, the physical and the visible. But heaven itself, as it is now known, will also be removed because there is some substance to that too. God doesn't need heaven, you know, to dwell. Before there was anything made, he dwelt. This is for those who have created. Even now, there's a creation called heaven in which spiritual beings can dwell. Angels too. It's all going to be removed when Christ Jesus makes the new heavens and the new earth. And when he makes the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more veil. Heaven is earth and earth is heaven. There's no more visible and invisible as far as creatures are concerned. And We can't see the angels and maybe at times they can't see us. All will be visible, beloved. The new creation will be heaven. It will be the kingdom of heaven. All things made new by Christ and the veil removed. And we, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, will be as kings and queens because of his work and by the power of his raising our bodies to be like his immortal, incorruptible <coughs> body. That he is, beloved, the head of the whole of creation, and is meant to unify the whole of creation, is really implied, you know, in that which we read. It's striking that when he appears in heaven and his ascension, it's not only the angels that speak Hosanna, and it's not only the four and twenty elders which represents the church, humanity, redeemed, elect humanity that shout the loud Hosannas, it speaks also of the four beasts, doesn't it? And those four beasts are represented in chapter 4, an eagle, an ox, and, and a lion. So you have the domestic animals and the, wild, the undomestic, the wild animals, and the fowls, really fish and fowl are created on the same day, and then a man as well with the likeness of, of man. The whole of creation, all created reality, Hosanna, because he's going to be lord of a whole new creation, which means the whole world, you see, renewed, even with the the animals in some way or shape and form to be there as well. And that will be glory, beloved, and that will be perfection. And that's what we wait for, because the accuser of the brethren has been silenced with respect to heaven, but he has not been silenced with respect to us, has he? He still speaks. And he speaks to the world. And there's going to come a day when that which is left of the church, maybe of our own children and grandchildren, coming maybe sooner than we think or like to think. We, we fear it almost, but it's coming. We can see the wickedness. And what's left of the church of the saints that remain will be s- stood stand between before the magistrates and they will say what I said in the introduction it's a lost cause. Give it up. Wickedness, they won't call it wickedness. We have the power, as they are the wicked. We have the strength. You have, you have nothing left. Where is the coming of your Lord? It's a false hope. Just surrender. Give up. It's a lost cause. And we'll spare your life. And how, is, how are those who are going to remain going to respond? in the confidence, beloved, of the truth, that Christ Jesus is alive and well and full of power and glory, wisdom, and all the rest that we spoke of in the text we quoted, in the knowledge, in the face of that, we'll say, this is our response. Repent or perish. You, Majesty, and all those arrayed before us in all of your seeming power should plead for mercy. Surrender. Because the writing is on the wall, and you are found weighed in the balance, and you are found wanting. And your judge and our Lord is going to appear at any time and when he does if you have not repented and surrendered yourself to him and kissed him if you will in surrender you are going to perish do with us and me what you like but your days are numbered and your cause is defeated and what we represent has the victory they laugh below they will laugh like Goliath laughed at David in that seemingly unequal battle, who had the last laugh. And it wasn't Goliath, was it? It was David. And someday, beloved, the son of David is going to show himself, and it's going to be the same outcome. And in that hope and that confidence, we can live and face whatever faces us and know in the end his cause stands and with whom we are identified and whom we confess is what's going to have the victory. And we as church militant beloved await his return as eagerly, you see, as the church triumphant waited his ascension. Now, that gives us a little time to deal with these other questions, first having to do with is Christ then not with us even to the end of the world as he hath promised, and then 47 as well. That question is raised because of Martin Luther and his view of the Lord's Supper, which for all The wisdom of that wonderful reformer, as God used him, was mistaken. And seriously mistaken. Reminding us, beloved, we are not to put our trust in any man or any theologian. I don't care what his name is. John Calvin and the whole lot of them. Honor them. Honor them our trust is not in man in the end it's in the scriptures and the scriptures have a way time and again to expose even the greatest theologians in having a mistaken view here and there and I include the lot of them even the founder of our denomination he too is a man scripture beloved not a man Final word. Martin Luther, wrong view of the Lord's Supper. Consubstantiation. Not wine turning into blood and not bread turning into flesh, but Jesus being bodily present with the bread and in the wine, so that when you partake, you in some ways eat and drink Christ Jesus and you partake of the life of Christ by partaking of that sacrament. He didn't want the abomination of Rome with idolatry, of course, but he couldn't give it up completely either. He did that in the interest, really, well, you could say a good good cause. He did that for the sake of church membership. He wanted to make sure those who left Rome didn't just despise church membership, but you still need the church. We have to reinstitute the church because it's only the church then that can administer the sacrament, and you need the sacrament. Why, why is the sacrament so important? Because, well, it's Christ is there, you see, bodily, flesh and blood. And that's how you're going to partake of him, by partaking of the sacrament. And only the church can give that to you, so you better have church membership, a worthy cause, beloved. But when you present the sacrament in those words, there's a problem. This is not just simply a difference of opinion and Luther can have uh, his mind and reformer will have their, their mind and, well, it really doesn't make much difference. It's just a difference. No. There's a danger in Luther's view. Luther begins to magnify the sacrament and the principle works through and when the sacrament is magnified to that kind of a degree, the word, the word preached, gets shoved aside, you see, and no longer become, that no longer becomes the chief means of grace. And I'll tell you, beloved, if it's true, if Luther was true, and every time the sacrament was administered, Christ was actually present in his flesh and blood in some shape or form, his body. We probably had all had the sacrament at least once a month, and maybe every Lord's Day. It's that important. You're, that's where Christ is, you see. You gotta eat and drink Christ, his life. You need him. We better have the sacrament. the word, the preaching, gets short-shifted, gets shoved aside. It's not nearly as important as that sacrament. And then you have liturgical issues, and you get into formality, and it's not the matter of the mind, you see, and of the understanding of how you live. Well, I took the sacrament. I had Christ. Flesh and blood partook of it. What do I have to fear? And you get dead orthodoxy. Luther didn't start there. He wanted to magnify the preaching, but as old H. Uxma said, principles work through, just as with common grace. For a time, particular atonement and common grace. Abraham Kuyper, but they will not dwell side by side. One will devour the other. and Common grace devours particular grace, and you know where that headed. And so this wrong view devours in the end the importance of the preaching of the word and understanding and confession and living, you see, from the understanding as we are called. Luther wanted to emphasize, well, he has to be present because didn't Christ say he would be with us even to the end of the world? Well, if he doesn't appear in the sacrament bodily, your reform would make him a liar, a deceiver. If he's not in the sacrament, he's still in heaven only? Only in heaven, as you people say? Well, then he's a liar. You've made him a deceiver. Because he said he's going to be with us to the end of the world. This is my body. That's how he's with us to the end of the, of the world. And the Reformed said, no, Luther. That's why they take the time to put this in the catechism, because it's Luther. And they had respect for him. And his arguments must be removed, you see, in that day and age, especially why we don't go with Luther, why we have a different view of the sacrament. You must understand where that view of the sacrament will lead to the minimizing of the word. The word will be devoured, if you will, by the sacrament as its its importance. Is it true that Christ is with us even to the end of the world as he promised? Yes, even though we say he's not in the sacrament, because... He's very man and very God. He's not just man. It's not just, we're not just talking about Christ with a human nature. He has a divine nature, too. With respect to his human nature, he's not on earth. But that doesn't mean with respect to his Godhead he's not on earth. With respect to his Godhead, his majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. So he has kept his word. He's not with us bodily. That's a human body. It has limitations. It's not omnipresent, Luther. It can't be or it's not a human human body, it's not our human nature in heaven. That doesn't mean he's not with us. doesn't have anything to do with the sacrament. The sacrament represents him. With his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he's no, no longer, he's no, he's no time absent from us. And then this response by Luther and the Lutheran, well, if his human nature is not present wherever his Godhead is, You've just separated the two natures of Christ, one from another. So his divine nature can be here, and his human nature in heaven, they've separated them. It's a, it's a poor <coughs> argument, though very poor. But because it's Luther's argument, they take some time to respond to it. Not true at all. The Godhead is omnipresent and without limitations. Luther, it must necessarily follow that the Godhead is beyond the limits of the human nature. And so the Godhead can be here, his divine nature. He's here as the Son of God, always as God. And still, it's in heaven too, joined to his human nature. He's still in heaven. His his divine nature is, according to his divine nature, the Son of God everywhere. But uh, when it comes to his person body, if you will, there in heaven, the divine nature there. As well, he hasn't separated it. It's simply his body, his divine nature, with him in heaven as well. So away with this nonsense, Luther! You're, you're easily easily refuted, and we will not have simply a sacramental religion and the word of God and the preaching of the word getting short shrift and shoved aside. In the interest of well, I've partaking of the sacrament, and I have Christ, and that will sustain me. who needs really to hear the word explained, expounded, and all of it set forth Lord's day by Lord's day, and that has occurred, beloved, just as they feared and foretold, but that brings us then to what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven, and be very brief here if you want to point these out, because he will be elaborated by someone else in the Lord's days that follow. Beloved, first of all, it means he's our advocate in the presence of the Father in heaven. He's our intercessor. And here again, the matter of the accusations come up. We're sinners. We're guilty of sin. And our conscience accuses us. And the accuser is still around, too. And he says, what makes you think you're going to be received by God and forgiven in light of what you have done and your even willful sins and transgressions? Don't you realize you are beyond hope? Give it up. We have an advocate in heaven, an intercessor, and we go in the name of our elder brother, and he's there. And remember, beloved, as Revelation chapter 5 said, he's there as the lamb. He's the lion. He rules all things as the lion but he's the lamb also, our blood. His blood is there. It's always remembered, you see. And we go in his name. And as we go in his name, and of what he has done on our behalf and our stead, we are received. And the mouth of the accuser, beloved, is shut again. We know we are forgiven and <coughs> justified and have right of access in his precious name because he's always There, That is, his work is always there as the lamb, as the blood, the atonement for the face of God. And then as well, we read that he will take us up unto himself. That has to do, of course, with the final resurrection. His body, he's the head. Well, if he's the head, the body must follow. And we are members of the body, so our bodies also will follow as surely as he, is head, will be raised someday. But even, beloved, now. Even now, remember, there's death. We experience death, a loved one, and there's separation. What gives us some hope and comfort as one whom we love is separated from us? Ah, he, she is with Jesus. The one whom I love sees Jesus. And that Lord and Savior ascended to heaven, greets her, greets him, embraces them, welcomes him into glory until he's pleased to return again to make all things new. And as we face death, as we all will, I heard it from my own brother's lips as he was dying. Farewell. But I'm going to see Jesus in heaven, his blessed faith. And that gives me anticipation, expectation, and even a desire to say, comfort, beloved, is being in heaven, absent from the body, absent in the body, but in heaven where we all shall be one day. And then, of course, this great truth that we have the Holy Spirit as an earnest, and all that means in the end is that he's the beginning of the inheritance. But what a wonderful beginning of the inheritance, the Holy Spirit himself Quickening us in knowledge and understanding and conveying to us who and what the life of Christ in heaven and his love and his wisdom and his word. Beloved, greater things to follow. If the Holy Spirit in all his wonder and glory is only the beginning, how glorious is going to be the fullness and the culmination. Don't you agree? Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word, for thy promises, for Christ who hath ascended, and though bodily separate from us, yet we are always on his mind, and with us in mind in our salvation, and of our children and children's children, working salvation, till that glorious day, He comes again, Lord, haste the day, and keep us and ours faithful until he comes again. In Jesus' name, amen.